actually going to be reading out of the ESV translation, and that will make a little bit more sense later. Um, So, Genesis 1, 1 through 9. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it be separate from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. You may be seated. Now we're going to go over to Jonah Chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break it up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the gods will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up. And hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous around them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. 
Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We probably all are really familiar with the story of Jonah. Whether you learned about it in Sunday school or you just heard about it, different messages. Um, but when we think of Jonah, I think a lot of times we think of Jonah and the fish. We don't necessarily think of the storm in chapter 1 that we just read about. Um, so the reason I wanted to read out of the ESV was because it was kind of like a narrative, a story, versus the King James Version. So God instructs Jonah to go to Nineveh. Um, I did a little bit of research on Nineveh, like where was Nineveh, what, why, why Nineveh? Um, and I discovered that Nineveh was the capital of a city in the country of Assyria, which would be somewhere near modern-day northern Iraq. So, Scripture tells us that God instructs Jonah to go to Nineveh, and he doesn't. He goes to a place called Tarshish, which, try saying that like three times out loud while you're reading. It's a, it's a little bit interesting. So, where is Tarshish? Well, Tarshish is actually a city on the coast of the Mediterranean in Spain. So if you know anything about geography, you know you've got your map. We've got Israel here. We've got Iraq over here. Then you've got the Mediterranean and all of Europe, and Tarshish is in Spain, which is all the way in the opposite direction. So Jonah went the opposite direction of what God had told him to do. Jonah was being selfish. He didn't want to go to Nineveh, and there are probably a host of reasons why, but he just didn't follow God's commandment. But he also did not just disobey. He didn't go to God with his concerns about going. He didn't say, okay, I don't want to do this, so let me talk to you about it. I'm just not going to do it, and then I'm going to run away. He ran the opposite direction, probably just like your kids. You tell them to do something, and they do exactly the opposite. Right? But here's the thing. The joke was actually on Jonah because he's thinking that he can flee the presence of God. But, much like you mothers in here who have eyes in the back of your heads, God can see everything. He knows all things. As Psalms 139, 7 through 10 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where should I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Shoal, you are there. If I take the wings on the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, as we know Jonah's going to do, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah flees the presence of God, but he doesn't even realize that in his disobedience that the presence of God is still with him. He tried to run from God's calling and even from God himself. But the God of the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, in his mercy, intervened by creating the storm of a lifetime. So what we're going to be talking about today is not necessarily Jonah and not necessarily the fish, we're going to be talking about the one who creates the storm. The storm may have seemed less than merciful in the moment when Jonah was in the raging storm and the wind and the waves, but God created and used the storm to save Jonah from a more devastating end. 
what could have been a more devastating end? Lack of peace from disobeying God. Lack of purpose. Jonah was set on a course where he would never have peace. And God could have let him go that way, but he didn't. Jonah ran away from God because he did not trust the plans that God had for his life were in Jonah's best interest. Jonah thought that he could do it better. He thought going all the way to Spain when he was supposed to go to Nineveh was in his best interest. He thought he was going to be safer there. But Jonah had forgotten that even in the midst of uncertainty and trials and storms that God never leaves his people. Once Jonah was on the ship and the storm was raging, the captain of the ship appeals to Jonah for help with exactly the same command that God had given to Jonah in verse 2. Arise. Arise. Just as God's initial call to Jonah, this plea was an appeal to draw near to God instead of fleeing from his presence. So God told Jonah, arise, go here. And we know he did the opposite. But then the captain of the ship says, arise, call out to your God. Even the ship captain, who is not a Hebrew, was instructing Jonah to go and draw closer to the Lord. Just as God's initial call to Jonah, the captain of the ship called him to do the same. It was a call to rise up and show compassion and mercy to those God had created in his image. So not only the Hebrew children, which were by default God's people, but also those who were Gentiles. God was calling Jonah to go to Nineveh, a place that was wicked, a heathen nation, a place that was really in war with Israel. So, in verse 6, the captain and sailors demand identification from Jonah. We read that. Who are you? Where have you come from? Where are you going? Why are you here? What's your story? And are you the problem? Yes, that's me. Jonah identifies himself as a child of God. He says, I am a Hebrew. I am a child of God. God has called me. So, it's really easy to, ju- to judge Jonah for what seems like hypocrisy in that statement, right? Because God called him to do something. He runs away, and then he's like, oh, yeah, I'm a child of God. But how many times have you and I said the same thing? Oh, yes, I'm a child of God. Yes, that's me. And yet we run from God's calling and purpose on our lives. How could Jonah identify himself as a Hebrew who fears the Lord and yet not obey the command that the Lord himself had given to Jonah. How could he do that? He knew this God. He says, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of the sea. He knows. He knows Genesis 1. He knows it. He was not ignorant. He was just human. But as we see from the story, God is merciful and he will go to great lengths to save his people in spite of and because of our humanity. In verses 11 through 13, we see that instead of putting Jonah to death because of his disobedience, God would work to put Jonah's sin to death. That's what he wants to do for us. God would work to sanctify Jonah, work to change his heart to make him more holy through the storms of life. And we see that happen all through the four chapters of Jonah. Jonah 2, 
the fish swallows him. Jonah has this prayer, and he has this realization of, wow, I have messed up big time. He recognizes salvation only belongs to the Lord, and he says that. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God rescues him. Jonah actually ends up going to Nineveh in chapter 3 to preach the gospel, and the Ninevites repent, turn to the Lord. And then in chapter 4, Jonah has another pity party. Right? It's just like life. It's just cycles. But in chapter 1, God is still with Jonah in the storm. And as a result of the storm, the sailors, who again were not Hebrews, they were Gentiles, they experienced the work of the Lord. Jonah had declared God's sovereignty. He says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. They recognized, hey, this is a really powerful God. And what they experienced was God's fierce judgment on Jonah's sin. Right? Jonah said, if you throw me overboard, the sea will calm itself. They experienced God's judgment. The storm was God's judgment. Yet, they also experienced firsthand for their own lives, God's mercy. Because what happened when Jonah was thrown overboard, they experienced God's mercy. They were saved. As a result, the sailors were spared a destructive end. The sailors then professed that God was sovereign over all. Then the, mirror, the uh, verse 16 says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And that moment, the object of the sailors' fear shifted from the storm itself to a fear of the one who had created a storm. So even in Jonah's disobedience, God used his disobedience to show who he was to nonbelievers. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Jonah used this phrase, himself in verse 9, and then the sailors also feared the Lord. So what is that? To fear the Lord is to regard him with reverence and awe for who he is. It's not like, you know, oh my goodness, I'm so afraid. You know, it's wonderment and amazement. And why should we fear the Lord? Who is the Lord? Well, in the Old Testament, God was referred to as Yahweh, which means I am. Have you ever wondered about that phrase, I am? What what does that actually mean? I am indicates that God is self-existing. He doesn't depend on anything or anyone to exist. We do. We depend on God. We need each other to exist. He doesn't need anything. He exists just because of who he is. He created the beginning He created the ending. He already knows how it's going to end. He himself has no beginning nor ending. And his existence precedes existence above everything else. Because he is the creator of all things, as we saw in Genesis 1. When God appeared before Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3.14, he identifies himself by name as I am who I am. In John 14, 6, Jesus identifies himself as the, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
Jesus was God. He was fulfilling his own existence. Is the one who is sovereign over the sea and the dry land the same one who made the sea and the dry land? Yes. He is the same one then who commanded the sea to calm itself after Jonah had been thrown overboard and the same one who spoke peace to the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. He is God. He's self-existing. He is I am. The response of fear and awe from both the sailors and the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus calming the sea for his disciples is evidence of the same truth. The one who creates the storm has the power to calm the storm. The one who creates the storm has his best, has his people's best interest in mind. Whether he's put you in the storm or the storm is just a result of life, he's there with you and he can speak peace to that storm. Charles Spurgeon, a highly influential 19th century preacher said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Now, that's way more than just a really great social media quote. What does it mean? Let's dig into that. It means that the storm is not meant to destroy you. The storm is not meant to swallow you. The one who created you created the storm not to harm you, not to cause you death, not to push you away from himself. But the storm is meant to show you God's incredible mercy. It's meant to bring you closer to him. The wave of the storms are meant to create a tide that crashes you into the arms of your creator and savior. We could take Spurgeon's quote, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages and say, I have learned to embrace the storm that throws me against the mercy of the I am. We find God's mercy in the storm. Why? Because he created the storm. But why does he create the storms that we go through? We just said it. He does it to draw you closer to himself. In the late 19th century, Chicago was beginning to boom. Businesses and homes were being built. It was becoming quite a populous and popular place to be. Unfortunately, the wooden buildings and homes were no match for the devastation that was caused by the Great Chicago Fire in October 1871. Over 300,000 people lost their lives. Homes, businesses were destroyed. One family who had previously lost their son to scarlet fever the year prior ended up losing their home, their businesses, and their property because of the fire. It was a devastating time for them. And two years later, after they really quite couldn't get their feet back on track, their purpose, they decided to travel to England. Horatio, the father, was delayed because of business ventures, so he sent his family ahead, his wife Anna and four daughters, with plans to meet them in a few weeks. However, on November 22, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic, the ship Anna and her daughters were on was struck by an iron sailing ship and sank with only 12 minutes. All four daughters perished in the accident. So this is just after... A couple of years prior, their son had passed away from scarlet fever. They lost everything due to the fire. And now their four daughters are dead. 
Miraculously, Anna survived. She sent a telegram to her husband informing him of the tragedy, and he set sail to be reunited with her immediately. One particular day on the voyage to his wife, the captain summoned Horatio to the bridge of the ship. Pointing to his maps, he explained to him that they were passing over the very spot where his daughters had passed away. It is said that Horatio Spafford then returned to his cabin to write, It is well with my soul. He experienced an actual storm. His daughters were dead. He had lost his home. He had lost his businesses. He had lost his son. And yet he said, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Why could he say that? Because the one who created the storm was with him. He was not alone. Jonah 3, verses 1 and 2 and 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against the message uh, call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah got it. He experienced God's mercy in the storm, and now he's ready to fulfill his calling. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They experienced God's mercy. However, even after your storm is over, after you've run away from God the first time, your task is still there. Jonah tried to run away from his actual God-given task, but God refused to let him go. Jonah was humbled, and he experienced God's mercy, but he still had to do the task that was set before him. God's mercy didn't change the original calling he had given to Jonah. It just saved Jonah from his own devices and allowed Jonah the second opportunity to follow through with what God had called him to do. The storm wasn't pointless. It reminded Jonah to fear God instead of fearing for his own security. If God can make the land and the sea and create the storm, he would be more than capable of caring for Jonah. As we just saw in chapter 3, God recommissioned Jonah's purpose, and Jonah submitted to that calling and went to Nineveh. Let's go back to the Spafford family. Why did they experience such a tragedy? We know, we know why Jonah did. He was disobedient. But why were those four innocent little girls not spared the storm? The Bible itself is full of stories of situations, storms, if you will, that allowed, that God allowed to happen so that he could humble his people to repentance and show him his sovereignty, his love, his mercy, his grace. The storms of life aren't always about repentance. Sometimes it's about trust. Sometimes it's about the sanctification process. And sometimes we just don't know why the storm is raging. Sometimes it's just about recognizing that God will never leave you. Sometimes it's about bringing glory to God. Think about the Spaffords. 
if his four daughters never would have perished in the storm, if he never would have crossed the Atlantic and seen the place where the storm took the lives of his daughters, would we have it as well? Would we be able to sing that? Would millions of other people who have gained peace from that song been able to say, it is well with my soul? God used the tragedy of the Spafford family to show his mercy to so many other people. Jonah's storm shifted his perspective, right? He was so worried about whatever, going to Nineveh, going to a place that was not friendly to the Hebrews, going to a place where if he preached repentance as God called him to do, he could be killed. I mean, the Ninevites were not going to like the message that he preached to them, right? He was worried about that. Yet he realized in the storm that his focus was on the wrong thing. So the storms of life shift our perspective away from what we do every single day to what is beyond us into the realm of the kingdom of God, into the realm of the I am, the one who is self-existing, the one who created us, the one who created everything. The almighty creator who made the earth and the sky, the sea and the storm, saw Jonah in his need way before he was in the belly of the fish. He knew what Jonah needed. He knew that Jonah needed a storm to shift his perspective. So he provided the storm so that way he could remind Jonah of his purpose for Jonah. It's hard to have our perspective shifted, isn't it? I I know. We don't often see the point of the storm or how God will use it. But still having the comfort of knowing that God is in control, that he is sovereign over it all, is somehow enough. Our trust in God, our obedience to his word, should never be based on the condition of the details of God's calling on our lives. Never. But always based on the character of God as the I am. I don't know what your storm is. I don't know if it's a metaphorical storm or an actual storm. I don't know if you're running away from God's calling like Jonah or if you're just living your life and life is happening like it did for Horatio Spafford. But whatever the storm that you're facing, rest assured that God is with you. He's with you whether you're in the storm, whether you're out of the storm. Whether he speaks peace to it or not, it can be well with your soul even during the storm because the one who created the storm is with you. God used the storm as a demonstration of his mercy to Jonah, and he will use your storm as a demonstration of his mercy to you. Amen. That's all that I have for you, New Life. <laughs> so I know we're a little bit early. Um, I think Sunday school, you can get your, your kids at 1045. But let's all stand.
we'll pray, and then we can have some time of fellowship together before our second service. Jesus, thank you so much for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your promise that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you are always with us, that your mercies are new every morning. God, I thank you for new life. I pray over our second service that you would be with us, that you would touch our hearts and our minds, and that you would remind us of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.